0: Mainnet 2021 is approaching fast. Join Masari's annual summit, September 20th to September 22nd, in New York City. The summit gathers crypto professionals for three days of agenda setting discussions, demonstrations, and networking. Learn more by visiting mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass using offer code Podcast. All one word. That's mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass by using offer code Podcast. All one word. Now, to the show. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, we have Week in Review, we have Coin of the Day, and we have other news. That's coming up on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. I don't have much ramblings right now, but if you are listening to this, pop on to call in app, call in. It's like a new form of clubhouse slash spaces that I think is better because you can record it, edit it, and then you can publish it as like a podcast, but it's a live taping of the conversation you're having. So remember on clubhouse you can, or spaces as well, you can do a live show or live conversation with people, but then once it's gone, it's gone which is kind of frustrating because it was great conversations but then it's just lost you know and if people don't join they don't hear the good stuff that was that was said and then everybody thinks that it's, you know, just going to be gone. So if somebody records it on the back end and plays it. It's like, hey, you're just like, you know, taking away our privacy aspect of this. And, I, I, you know, something was wrong with Clubhouse and Spaces. I never got involved. But this new calling app, and I'm not promoting it. I'm, well, I am promoting it, but I'm not an investor or anything. There's no reason why I'm saying to join it. But I really enjoyed this. And I think that they kind of hit the nail on the head for this kind of style of recording and podcasting and conversations. And so I'm going to be doing a live weekend review or live live show after i produce this show daily i'm scheduling it on there so if you guys want to check that out too it's going to be a lot it's gonna be live so if you want to join in the conversation and talk about the news of the day come in i can let you join the conversation as well we will record it i will do the news of the day but it'll be live off the cuff and i'm just gonna throw it out there and you know just see what see what happens and i want to be involved i want you to come in talk to me talk about the news start sharing your opinions And let's start having the conversations about the news together so we can have a more robust opinion about this space. Anyway, I'll be on Call and Nap today after this is published at around 12.15. Anyway, let's get into those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. And I'm recording this at 10.11 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at, I don't know because I didn't pull up the screen. Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Okay, here we go. Bitcoin is in at, oh, why did I pull up the screen? $45,750 down 3% in 24. Ethereum's down 7% in 24. I'm gonna refresh this. Is this the right prices? Yep, $3,310 for Ethereum. Cardano's at $2.42 down 6.9%. Binance Coin's down 2.3% at $408. And Teller's in the number five spot. Solana's number six down 11.8% at 175. XRP is number seven, Dogecoin number eight, Polkadot number nine, and USDC number ten. See, I thought I got to- everything totally wrong. I was like, "Wait, is this the right screen?" I thought this was from a couple days ago, but nope, we're bloody. Total market cap, we're at two point zero six trillion dollars. A BTC dominance of forty one point seven percent, and an F dominance of eighteen point eight. Now it's time for a coin of the day, and our coin of the day is XYO XYO. Full disclaimer, full uh, transparency, I hodl a little bit of XYO. It's ranked number 141 on CoinMarketCap. Its price today is 3.2 cents, up 60% in 24 hours. Yowzers. Total market cap is $415 million. Fully diluted market cap is $461 million. Its all-time high price was 3.7 cents. It was oh, 13 hours ago, and it's down 11% from its all-time high, but it's up... from its all-time low sent a year ago. Yowzers, yowzers. Well, you can buy XYO on Coinbase Exchange, uh, Coinbase Pro, that is, KuCoin, Uniswap, Gate.io. And uh, the reason why the price is pumping so hard apparently is they just got listed on Coinbase Pro uh, with with an XYO to USD pairing, and it's their biggest volume right now. It's $45.8 million in 24 hours. And KuCoin is pretty much up there. It's around 42 million dollars, but Coinbase just jumped to the front of the pack with that. So what does XYO do? Well, XYO has a ERC20 token and an ERC721 token. The ERC20 token is the XYO Foundation, and which is an oracle that provides you know growth and development for the foundation and one of the use cases is an erc 721 which as we know is the nft token for uh, ethereum and it is just a non-fungible token and so what they're doing is they're putting geospatial location data into a non-fungible token meaning that they're making sure that location is on the blockchain So your house address is on the blockchain. It can't be moved or spoofed or whatever. And this was important. And one of the examples that I've heard XYO give before is that remember when the uh, drone landed in, I think it was Saudi Arabia, the U.S. drone, it was years back, landed in Saudi Arabia. um, And basically what they did is they hacked the system of the U.S. drone and landed it into a different location. And the way that they did that was they convinced the drone that the location that it was landing at was correct. And that wouldn't happen if the location data was on the blockchain. Because what they did is they spoofed the location data for the U.S. drone and landed it in Saudi Arabia. Anyway, that's what they do. XYO, check them out. Now to our weekend review with Scott Cipollina. Scott Cipollina, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. A little frustrated this morning. We've been trying to uh, get this set up for the past couple of minutes, and I have this little weird noise in my headphones. That I don't know if it's going to come over on the recording. So if anybody hears that stupid noise during this recording, I apologize in <laughs> advance. But we're talking our weekend review today, and we're going to start with El Salvador. You know what? This hype of El Salvador going into uh, or making Bitcoin legal tender pumped Bitcoin like crazy over the weekend. And then dropped out of nowhere come the seventh when they made it legal tender and it came into law. Uh, tell us a little bit about that process, sir.
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of that might it could very well be tied to the fact that um, El Salvador's embrace of Bitcoin as legal tender has actually been uh, a, a fairly, con- well, I say fairly, that's an understatement, a very controversial uh, political decision. Over the summer, there's been numerous protests, um, surveys have been done that have shown that the majority of Salvadorans don't actually want Bitcoin's legal tender. Uh, there's been criticisms being leveled at Bukele's government from international organizations like the IMF, the World Bank. Um, and really, by and large, the decision outside of Bukele's government, um, really everywhere you look, has been controversial at best and you know unwanted at, at worst. Um, and I think it, what's, what's tied to the price crash that you mentioned um, is that when Bitcoin bega- became legal tender on the 7th of September earlier this week in El Salvador, uh, the president, May Bukele, he announced that the country had already purchased 400 uh, Bitcoin. And at, at the time, uh, Bitcoin was priced above 50K. Since then, Bitcoin had dropped by 10%, meant, meaning that the country had essentially lost millions of dollars worth of its Bitcoin investment.
0: Well, I mean, that was pretty unexpected because, look, we were thinking that this was going to be a pump. We had a huge pump in the whole market. You know, things like Solana went up, you know, almost doubled over the the previous week. Uh, And then we just had, you know, a Bitcoin go go high. And then we had massive just dropouts. And we're trying to figure out where the money came from. Why did we have such a pump and such a dump? And do you think that it was any liquidation within um, El Salvador? Did we have any definitive kind of like clues to what the dump was? I think it's hard,
1: ultimately, which is what I always say to questions like this, is that ultimately they're they're quite speculative. Um, I think it's, you know, it's not unreasonable to assume that leading up to the 7th of September, when a country was going to become the first country ever in history to adopt any cryptocurrency as legal tender, a lot of people would consider that to be quite a bullish development. So it's no surprise, really, I suppose, in my mind, that Bitcoin's price increased on the lead up to the 7th of September. Um, But then, you know, as I said, once the, you know, some of the inherent issues with El Salvador's decision and its its road to this to this policy. Um, you know, they came to light. And I think that that may have also played a role in Bitcoin's uh, price crash, let's call it. But then there's also other things a little bit more theoretical that aren't necessarily to do with El Salvador um, as a policy issue um, itself. So I was reading this week about the law of large numbers, which just essentially implies or suggests that um, an asset isn't necessarily going to continue rising at the rate that it rises when it's small. When it becomes big,
0: yeah, fair enough. Uh, Bitcoin is, you know, touching up on a, about a one trillion dollar market cap. Which to again double Bitcoin price, you would have to add another trillion dollars into Bitcoin. And you know, if you're juxtaposing this back to, you know, when Bitcoin was a thousand dollars, going from a thousand dollar Bitcoin to two thousand dollar Bitcoin to three thousand dollar Bitcoin, it was it was. Only, I'm going to say only, but only a couple billion dollars to throw into Bitcoin opposed to now you have to throw another trillion dollars into it. You know, I don't even know your position on Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general because you try to stay pretty um, level or in the middle because of your job and what you do. But what do you think about the World Bank and the IMF and their criticisms toward Bitcoin? The way that I look at it, and I think that a lot of people in the Bitcoin space is looking at this as a this is a uh, you know st- status quo or traditional finance institutions just hating on Bitcoin because they don't like it. Um, and you know, and that's what we see. You know, obviously JP Morgan back in the day, and now they're trying to pivot more toward cryptocurrencies, and other banks uh, are trying to pivot toward more, more toward bit- cryptocurrencies, even though they were very really, uh, they're criticizing cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, but now they're that there's an upside to this. and But it just seems as though that we have a lot of criticism toward Bitcoin, and I don't know if it's well-placed. Do you agree with the IMF or the World Bank and their criticism, or do you think they're, they're just FUDsters?
1: <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I, what I will say is that I, I, I really hate the use of the term FUD that we see so often on social media and things of like that. So I feel like it's it's used to, to dismiss very valid criticisms of the crypto industry, generally speaking, whenever there's a controversial issue at hand. But I think there's a distinction to be made. You mentioned JP Morgan there. Um, you see a lot of institutional players that are now buying into Bitcoin because they've, they've, their heads have been turned with regard to it being a speculative asset and a store of value. I, I, I'm not going to suggest that it is or that it isn't a store of value because I think that that would be outside the remit of, of my role, I suppose. But what, what I would say is that it's, 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 it's fairly clear that Bitcoin does not function well, or at least it's my view that it's clear. That Bitcoin does not function well as a medium of exchange. I mean, anybody can just look at Bitcoin's day-to-day price, and you you realize that it's 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 incredibly volatile. And if you look at traditional fiat currencies, those are not volatile. Um, obviously, we have things like the financial crash in 2008, and things of that sort. But by design and by intent, these things are not volatile. So I think when you look at what the World Bank has said, what the IMF has said, and what countless other organizations have said, is that putting nations' economy on you know, making it reliant on something as volatile as Bitcoin is fundamentally a very risky decision.
0: Well, I think that, well, as we had on the show, and my listeners uh, have heard, is that if the percent of the population is small compared to compared to people who are um, for it. Um, a lot of people don't want to accept it, but they're not against taking it as legal tender. The the fact I think is businesses don't want to be forced how to conduct their business and say, oh, I have to accept something. And that could just, because, you know, somebody just doesn't want to learn how to use Bitcoin. I I just, I don't want to learn how to use Bitcoin. Mm. Just give me the dollar. Mm. Please don't force me to learn some new shit. But, you know, Mm. I, I think that one of the headlines that I saw come out the other day is that they're projecting that, uh, Western Union could lose 400 million dollars in revenues because of this uh, switch to Bitcoin where remittance and money being sent uh, across borders into different countries the one of the biggest players in the game to do this is Western Union it, to send money to different countries or to send them, send money home to send money abroad and they take a healthy cut of that money and now we're going to just start chipping away at their profits and you know honestly because in here's my two cents and my opinion about this is that you know when you are taking big chunks of money from people who send remittances back to their their home countries you're taking money from poor people for the most part and this is this make sure that's that's clear people that are working abroad in like say the UK or the US and they're sending money back home to El Salvador or wherever those are they're sending money back to their families that don't have the means that they have in these western countries and western union is taking huge percentage i think unfair percentage of that of that income and so this actually could be a benefit for those people do you agree or not agree
1: well i think that you know from the perspective of those people that rely on remittances i think that you know a a central entity like western Union taking a smaller chunk of the pie is you know to be welcomed that i think that that's 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 quite obvious but at the same time, it goes back to the discussion that we were having a couple of minutes ago and about the criticisms of the IMF and the World Bank have leveled at El Salvador. The fact of the matter is that Bitcoin, the ev- no evidence, I think, in my view, at least, covering this industry from day to day, suggests that Bitcoin is a reliable medium of exchange.
0: Speaking of criticisms, uh, Brian Armstrong had some criticism for the sec and i think that that was a very interesting uh, thread i thought it was very ballsy yeah. of brian armstrong to put that out there this is we don't see people attack the sec um like he has the only person other person that comes to mind is elon musk who's always been uh very uh mm. open with the sec of his feelings uh and brian armstrong basically said look you guys are not regulating Evenly across the board. Um, we're asking, not asking for permission, but we're keeping you apprised of what we're doing with our business that is already publicly traded, that is running a regulated, as legal, as transparent as possible in the United States. And you're shutting us down, opposed to other players that are trying to do the same thing. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that?
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say is that Brian Armstrong is certainly right about one thing, which is that the SEC, or generally speaking, regulators around the world, don't necessarily apply their rules effectively across the board. That's true, regulators like anybody else can make mistakes. And I think that the SEC is, is certainly not above criticism. Um, what I will say though, is that it's, it. Brian Armstrong has generated a lot of criticism for himself by the way that he, he worded um, certain statements in that Twitter thread that he published. Uh, one of which was, how can lending be a security? Uh, lending is typically understood to be a security the vast majority of people. The, Legislation in America has not changed since 1930s on this yield products, much like uh, Coinbase's 4% savings product, those things are considered securities, and he's been criticised, really frankly, for being, you know, one of the biggest figureheads in the crypto industry and making what appears to be quite an elementary mistake about understanding securities legislation, which is not a good look.
0: So can you help us understand what is the security aspect of this process is? Because, okay, look, I I, I want to understand the banking aspect of it, because I think that we're looking at this from maybe many different views, where there's probably the regulator views, there's the Coinbase or bank view, and then there's the um, person who has the capital that's putting it into their bank view. And we're not gonna, let's just use a normal bank, because what Coinbase is trying to act as is a bank, I would assume. They're going to take deposits of your funds, and then they're going to, just like a bank would do loan it out to other people and they will you know make money off of that but you're still going to get paid interest off of your deposits to your bank or your holdings to your bank or your savings account or your checking account or whatever you want to call it and then so so right now i can go to the bank i could put money into the bank i'm going to get 0.03% you know interest or whatever measly thing but they're going to make a lot of money off of you know fractional reserve banking lending my money out many times over um, and so i guess what i want to understand is where the security as- aspect of that is I think actually
1: Matt Matt Levine wrote a really good article about this on Bloomberg this week where he just essentially reminded everybody that a bank account is not a security. So when we look at how banks provide lending services to to their clients, they haven't found some sort of loophole that Coinbase could make use of. Uh, That's exactly what he had written basically in his article. Uh, the reason why is because banks are—they fall under banking legislation in the United States, and they are not—they're they're exempt from securities legislation for that specific reason. When we look at lend, that that product was announced in June. Um, it's a four percent savings product, and that, given the fact that Coinbase is not a bank, that product and Coinbase as a result would fall under securities legislation, and that is the prevailing opinion. By you know, if you if you if you read brian armstrong's thread and you you specifically look at the quoted tweets from that thread that is the prevailing opinion and the the point of controversy i wouldn't say controversy the point of criticism um as far as it's focused on brian armstrong is that this legislation has not changed since the 1930s so people are asking how is it possible that somebody in the position of brian armstrong who is focused on providing this service to it to to his customers or to coinbase's customers would not know this
0: so basically you're saying it's a rookie mistake of somebody that should know better
1: Essentially the well, that's what it's being perceived as. So
0: I guess the, the the solution for Coinbase then would be to make themselves a bank.
1: I mean, that's a solution. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a solution that Brian Armstrong is going to is gonna favor because banking legislation or rather banking regulation in the United States is far more stringent than securities regulation. So if Brian Armstrong is upset with the SEC right now, he would be ups- he he would be having a lot more to say if Coinbase was suddenly approaching this back.
0: <laughs> interesting, interesting. And last thing I want to cover today, and I think it was big news, it just came out today. I'm not too brushed up on this, and this is, I'm happy that you're here, it is the new Binance US uh, president that has came into yeah. the uh, to uh, replace um, uh, Brian Brooks and who would replace uh, Catherine uh, Coley. And so Binance.us is cycling through their. Uh, executives or the presidents or the CEOs or whatever you want role you want to say there and this person new person is Brian Schroeder he has worked in Asia for Uber China he has worked for Chinese fintech giant ant group and now he's going to take the helm of Binance.us get them to raise money get them on the path to go uh, IPO in a couple of years and basically you know make it more I guess uh, calm the waters of this, I guess, turbulent past year with Binance.us. Can you tell me a little bit more about this guy? He's
1: got a pretty wide remit uh, here. He's going to be overseeing strategy, uh, legal, HR, product, everything that you can imagine a president's remit would fall under. That's what Brian's going to be doing. And I think one of the most interesting things to discuss here is whether or not Binance US is, as CZ, a Zhangpeng Zhao, like to say, truly at arm's length to Binance uh, when Brian Brooks. Um, after three months on the job. That was allegedly um, down to uh, questions over Finance US's independence. Brian Brooks was trying to make it such that Finance US was actually going to be more independent via a restructured board uh, and a fundraising round. And reports suggested that things came to a head with CZ, essentially, and Brian left. And, and, and that was essentially the end of that process. So it would be interesting to see now under Schroeder's presidency whether or not finance us actually shows itself to be as independent as CZ claims that it is
0: really quick um, and this is obviously opinion china uber didn't go well they got pretty much muscled out of china and dd took over um ant group is a big company but uh they're also having their problems uh, over over there as well with um jack ma and it, it seems as though both companies didn't handle the regulatory or the environments really well and planning for their futures. Do you think that he's the right guy f- to handle this job?
1: I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't possibly be able to comment as to whether or not he's the right person. What I would say is and he definitely has a lot of, on his plate, as you mentioned earlier, it's been a very controversial year for Binance. Um regulators all around the world have have criticized the, the exchange for either operating without a license or they've issued warnings, consumer warnings to the people that live in those jurisdictions about steering clear from Binance. As CZ says, Binance US is a distinct entity. But again, there is no there is no guarantee that to use the phrase Brian Schroeder has used, that Binance US is regulatory, regulatory compliant. Uh, he says that, um, but it's unclear whether or not that's actually the case. Uh, and as I said, all around the world, you go to the UK, you go to Italy, Japan, Malaysia, uh singapore there's been issues that the exchange has uh been experiencing for months now so whether or not he's the right person for the job to go back to the question i think it would be you know misplaced of me to say yes or no directly but it would be fair to say that he has a lot of misplay
0: fair enough scott Chiballina, thank you very much for coming on the show and going over this week in review thanks matthew appreciate it and now to other news Key pillars in today's cryptocurrency industry like stablecoins and DeFi pose a threat to the world's central banks, according to the Head of Banking for International Settlements Innovation Hub, said this in quote, Central banks have a job to do. Delivering price stability and financial stability. They must retain their ability to do it. Central bank digital currencies will take years to be rolled out, while stablecoins and cryptocurrencies are already here. He continues to say stablecoins are only as good as the governance behind the promise of backing. As you know, stablecoins are backed by a dollar or a pound or a euro. And so he says that it's only as good as the government that backs them anyway. He continues to say, make no mistake, global stablecoins, DeFi platforms, and big tech firms will challenge banks' models regardless. Mexico's central bank governor says Bitcoin is not money. He says this in quote, Whoever receives Bitcoin in exchange for goods and services, we believe that transaction is more akin to bartering because that person exchanges for a good for a good, nor really money for a good. Continues to say, Bitcoin is more like a dimension of precious metals than daily legal tender. People will not want their purchasing power, their salary to go up or down by 10% from one day to another. You don't want that volatility for purchasing power. In that sense, it's not a good safeguard of value. An interesting report came out the other day. Outlier's most recent blockchain development trends report said that Ethereum Cardano ranked first and second in terms of monthly active developers, with 168 and 165 per month, respectively. And finally, the SEC has extended its review of X Bitcoin exchange-traded fund application yet again. The regulatory body said yesterday in an extension notice, the SEC said that it will not give an answer on whether or not it will approve the ATF until November 14th. As you guys all know, a Bitcoin ETF is an investment tool that allows investors to buy shares that represent the biggest cryptocurrency by market cap, Bitcoin. In my opinion, this is bureaucracy at its finance. Now, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite about this, because I say if you're going to regulate something, you need to take time to understand it. Take time, understand it, and make it proper. So, I don't want this to sound hypocritical, but you know they keep kicking the ball down the field, and I don't know why. You know, Bitcoin ETFs applications have been rolling through the SEC for years now, and they should have figured it out by now. But with this ETF, they keep kicking the ball, and I don't know why. And so anyway, I'm hoping that November 14th we get some answers, yes or no, and we get reasons for it. And so I guess the industry could start you know, working on those reasons instead of just pushing the ball down the field. But actually, what I really want is a Bitcoin ETF come November 14th. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt Daily. My name is Matthew Diemer. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. And until tomorrow, happy hodling, everyone, and I'll see you on calling. Mainnet 2021 is approaching fast. Join Masari's annual summit, September 20th to September 22nd in New York City. The summit gathers crypto professionals for three days of agenda-setting discussions, demonstrations, and networking. Learn more by visiting mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass using offer code decryptpodcast. All one word. That's mainnet.events and get $450 off your pass by using offer code decryptpodcast. All one word.